gather together to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us, and he's offered us forgiveness. And it's like the verse that Dave shared when he was leading worship, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who's done it all so that we could receive forgiveness, that we'll be cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. And so that gives us an opportunity to live in freedom. That gives us an opportunity to live without condemnation. That gives us an opportunity to live a forgiven life. And that's why we come together and we celebrate Jesus Christ this morning. He's done so much for us. And one of the things he gives us is forgiveness of sins. And what he does, he reconciles us to God. And so we're grateful for that and uh, thankful for so many of the blessings he gives us. If you're a guest here today, I just want to, on behalf of the church as a whole, say welcome. Thank you for being here today. And uh, we love you. I hope God speaks to you this morning through the message we're going to jump into here in just a moment. I want to thank our special guest that we had this morning. If you were in Theater 9, Dave Harine uh, from Indiana, from Peru, Indiana, just north of Mexico, just south of Chile. If you think I'm kidding, go talk to him after the service. He actually lives in that area in Peru, Indiana, and he's uh, here leading worship with us uh, today. And so we're grateful for him being here with us. We're going to jump into the message uh, back in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, you can look at that. I want you to bow before the Lord and ask him to speak to us. Father God, we come into your presence, and uh, we seek you this morning, and you promise if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. Please be present, be ever-present in this place. Bind the enemy and the principalities and the demons of darkness, anything from this place, and allow us to only hear truth this morning, God. Please speak your truth from the pages of your word. Use your spirit and the word to pierce our hearts and to speak into us in such a way that we need to hear the things that are being said. And Father, if my words are not the right words, then I pray you'd speak to hearts and have people forget those words. And and Father, I pray you'd anoint my lips to speak what you want said to those that will hear this, whether it's online, whether it's Theater 14, Theater 9, wherever it is, Father God, I pray you'd speak your truth in a way that transforms people's eternity, transforms relationships we have here on this earth, and transforms this city and the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it is true that you are more than just a sum of a bunch of decisions you make. You're more than just your decisions and more than mistakes that you've made. You're more than things that you've been labeled by. You're more than a divorce. You're more than a night that you spent in the backseat of a car. You're more than the wounds that you've created in your own life. You're more than the cuts. You're more than the eating disorder. You're more than the obsession. You're more than the anxiety. You're more than the fear. You're more than all of your past sins when you've been forgiven. Because when you've been forgiven, you receive new life. The old is gone and new has come. You receive no condemnation. The condemnation is removed. The chains are gone. The bondage is gone. You're set free. You're washed clean, as 1 John says, that you're washed clean. You are cleansed of your sins. So the question becomes for you, have you been forgiven? Have you truly received and embraced forgiveness? The forgiveness is offered to you through Jesus Christ, by God the Father, through his Son, and by the power of your spirit, by his Spirit, speaks to our hearts and shows us our need for that forgiveness, a void in our lives that only he can fill. And then you receive that forgiveness. Have you received that forgiveness? And my fear is, and my belief is, that all across this country and churches today, including this one, there are people that will hear a message of forgiveness, and they will believe that it's true, and they will agree with what Jesus did on the cross, but they won't receive it themselves. It never becomes personal. It never becomes theirs. You know, there's something that's so special about forgiveness. It was tailor-made for you. God knows you. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you say them. So he knows your sins. He knows the sins that you would commit. And when his son died on the cross for you, he died for your mistakes. He died for your sins. And he offers you forgiveness that is tailor-made for you. And he's giving you something when he gives you that forgiveness. For God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And so he offers his son. He's giving us forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. And we oftentimes don't think about forgiveness as something that's given to us, but it's something that's been given to us. Therefore, we've been entrusted with it. For those of you who have received forgiveness, the question becomes, are we trustworthy with what we've been given? 
So do we live a forgiven life? And what should a forgiven life look like? And that's what we see in Luke chapter 17 today. In Luke chapter 17, we're going to be in verse 1. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, I'll just let you know what I told the first service. We give them out um, here. If you want one, you go to the connections table on your way out. It's inside the doors. There's a lady that will be standing there, and she'd love to hand you a Bible. We put all the verses on the screen. Uh, but we'd love for you to have a Bible. You can see what's going on around the passage that will actually be on the screen. And, and what's happening here is we're continuing a series we've been doing entitled Entrusted. And we started this series back in Luke chapter 16, and we said the overarching question for the entire series, Luke chapter 16 through 18, is this, are we trustworthy with what we've been entrusted with? In Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, you saw Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he's talking to them about being trustworthy with money. And he says to them that money is something you're supposed to use as an investment strategy so you can store up treasure in heaven, as Matthew calls it, where thieves can't steal it and moth and rust can't destroy it. And we saw what that treasure is. It's true riches in verse 11. And you remember what true riches are? True riches, our lives have been transformed because of the way that you've used your resources, because of the way you've used your life, because of the way that you've used your money. You've impacted lives that are true riches, the people that will welcome you into eternal dwellings, the, the thing that can't be stolen from you, the thing that thieves can't steal and that moth and rust can't destroy. It's people's lives who've been transformed by Jesus Christ as a result of the way that you've invested your life. And so he talks about money in, in verses 1 through 13, and then verse 14, the Pharisees have been listening in, and so he starts to speak to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were these guys, they were guardians of the truth. They had been entrusted with the law and the prophets. It's the Old Testament. And then John the Baptist came, and then Jesus comes, and now the kingdom of God. And so these are the guys that claim to have the truth. But Jesus says to them, when you've been entrusted with the truth, the truth transforms your heart in such a way that it transforms your life. And then it should transform the people that you come into contact with. And he gives them a warning that they know the truth, but they haven't been transformed by the truth. That inside-out transformation hasn't taken place for them. And where they're headed, it's a lot of trouble. And you can read verses 14 through the end of chapter 16 and verse 31. And then Jesus transitions audiences. And he speaks again to his disciples in verse 1. And in verse 1, he starts to talk to them about what it is to be forgiven and how to live the forgiven life. And look at what he says in verse 1 of Luke chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It'd be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Verse 3, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, and a mulberry tree had an intricate root system, a deep root system. Some, I believe, lived to be about 600 years old. He said, you can say to that kind of tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. If you just have that little amount of faith. He says this to his disciples. And remember, he was just talking to the Pharisees. He started off talking to the disciples. Then he talks to the Pharisees. Now he transitions back to the disciples, and that's key because he's speaking to people that have been forgiven. Did you notice he teaches them what it is to live out forgiveness? And the first thing that he teaches them is this, that forgiven people forgive people. And that's our first point today. Forgiven people forgive people. It's like you've heard it said before, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. But what's really being said here is, do to others what's been done for you. And, and if you think about it, it's natural for us in many realms that if somebody does something to us, we want to do something back to them. <laughs> and if you think about it, like uh, driving to church today, perhaps you got cut off driving to church today, even on the way to church. And I'll just tell you, maybe you wouldn't feel this way, but I'll tell you how I feel sometimes. Somebody cuts me off, I want to cut them back off. 
or even I'll just tell you, sometimes when somebody just passes me on the road, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. All of a sudden, I think I'm in like a NASCAR race. Like, where are they going? I don't even know where their destination is, but I'm going to beat them to wherever they're going or at least to where I'm going. And so I'm like trying to get ahead of them. So they do something to me, I want to do something back to them. Or, or maybe you've seen this before on the playground. You see a kid push a little kid, and, and then the other kid comes back and they want to push back. It's like Dave was talking about when he was talking about his kids. The, the, the daughter wants to get underneath the son's skin, and then the son wants to go back. It's natural. That's what you want to do. And I, I was reflecting on this in my own life this week. And I thought probably no place is this more evident than when I play sports. And I have not been serious about playing sports in a long time, but I remember playing basketball, which can't you tell. <laughs> I'm a basketball player. But anyway, playing basketball or playing football. Growing up, there was always the game within the game. And that was when you tried to get in someone's head and you're talking smack to them because they're your opponents, the person you're defending or whatever. And I remember playing defensive back in football and the receiver would come out there. And in the first quarter, you're just kind of getting to know each other, just feeling each other out. You start with some like just kind of surface level smack talk. You know, they run their first route and kind of push them a little bit. And then, and then you say things like, man, you're so slow. You finished third in a two-man race. You know, and he goes back to the huddle. He comes back out. And then he's got some something for you. You end up in a pile together, grab you by the face mask. and says, your breath stank so bad. When you go to Taco Bell, people run for the border. You know, you just start going back and forth with this whole thing. And as the game goes on, you get a little bit more personal. And you may attack maybe their, their intelligence level. You might say something like, you're so stupid. It takes you an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. You know, you start kind of going after each other in this thing. By the fourth quarter, it gets so personal. You're talking about each other's families. You don't even know their family. You're talking about each other's families. You're like making mama jokes. Ooh, you make a mama joke. That's you're starting to get intense. You're kind of one up in each other. This deal, but I I remember talking doing mama jokes. You say things like, "Your mama's so dumb. She puts M and M's in alphabetical order." You know, you just start saying stuff to people. Start trying to attack them in this deal, and that's natural. What's not natural is that you've been forgiven, and so when someone wrongs you, you forgive them. But you see, forgiven people forgive people, and what we're talking about here is something that's supernatural. It's supernatural that you would be forgiven, and it's supernatural that you would forgive. And it's so important that you go back to verse 1 and you see who Jesus is speaking to here, this context here, that he's speaking to the disciples. And think about the disciples for a couple moments. A lot of times when we think about the disciples, uh, they're just kind of like Jesus cronies or like some groupies that maybe like help him set up before he feeds the 5,000 or whatever he does. They're just kind of there. They're just present. And maybe you grew up in church. And so when I say the disciples, you just think of like a picture, like maybe a flannel graph board. And remember when you were a little kid and they'd stick the thing up there and you'd be like, wow, how does that stay on there? You're like, you're not listening to the lesson. But they got the flannel graph pictures. Or maybe as an adult you saw a movie or you've seen a work of art that Leonardo da Vinci did. And they're just the dudes that are sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. That's who the disciples are. And they got bad bathrobes and they got a beard. But anyway, that's basically who they are to you. But if you think about it, these are real people. And they have a real story. And they have a real past. And they've committed real sins too. Can you think about what it was like for them to be called to Jesus? For them to be given a second chance in life? For them to receive forgiveness? For guys like Peter, brash Peter, you hear what he does after he follows Jesus. Imagine what this guy was like before Jesus. You don't think he ever said something that was so painful to someone else? You don't think he ever got himself in trouble? The guy that denies Jesus, he knows what it is to be forgiven. Or you think about Thomas. Do you think Thomas was always a doubter? Or did it just happen when he started to follow Jesus? I imagine Thomas, I imagine him was kind of like a weenie, like just kind of like Eeyore guy, just worried about everything and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and then all of a sudden he's forgiven for all the times he's doubted. Or, or you think about Andrew, or you think about Philip, or you think about these different guys, you think about Levi. Levi's a tax collector. Do you know what that means? He voluntarily works for the Roman government. Probably as a Jewish man, he voluntarily decided that he was going to raise money for the Romans. The Romans had come and they were oppressing the Jewish people. And you know how Romans took charge? 
violently. They would kill people to show that they have authority. And then this guy voluntarily decides to collect money and steal money from his people to fund their army. It'd be the equivalent of if Al-Qaeda came to your neighborhood, raped and killed your family, and then your next-door neighbor decided to start working, raising money for them to fund their army. Can you imagine how hated this guy was? And he's a traitor, and he's a thief, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a tax collector. He's an outcast. Nobody likes him. And then Jesus, as he's doing his ministry, he goes around and he's picking up guys that are going to be the 12 guys that he trusts the most to carry on this revolution that he's starting that will happen to the point of the cross and he's going to leave everything to these guys. And the guys he's going to entrust, he picks a guy like Levi. He says, Levi, you come follow me. And he gets a second chance. He gets a new life. And old things go away and new things come. And he gets cleansed and he gets redeemed. Can you imagine what it was like to be Levi when Jesus was living his life and doing his ministry and they're there with him? What do you think that Levi thought when the woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus? You can read it in John chapter 8. There's this woman, she gets brought before Jesus, and they're trying to trap Jesus. Either he lets her go, and then he doesn't care about the law, or he condemns her, and, and everyone would be mad at him for that. And so they put him in this situation, and he kind of draws in the sand a little bit, and, and he says, he was without sin, you cast the first stone. And everybody drops their stones, and, and there's this woman there. What do you think Levi thought? I think Levi was just thinking, great for that woman! I think Levi was probably thinking about his own story. It's like some of us, we think about our own stories and what it is to be forgiven. What do you think Levi or Peter or Andrew or Philip or Bartholomew or any of these guys were thinking when Luke chapter 7 took place? Remember Luke chapter 7? We've been going through Luke. And in Luke chapter 7, there was a man named Simon. He was a Pharisee and he invited Jesus over to his house. And I don't know what his motive was for the meal. Maybe it was to trap Jesus. Maybe it was he had a genuine interest of some sort, but the pressure from the guys, I don't know, but he's a self-righteous guy. And he thinks really highly of himself, and he's having this meal, and Jesus is there, and there's this woman, and she's got a reputation that everyone knows, including all the men at that table, and how they know, you can figure that out. But this woman comes up, she stands behind Jesus' feet, and she starts to weep, and then she gets down and she washes Jesus' feet with her hair, and then Simon thinks to himself, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, then he'd never let her touch him. Jesus reads Simon's mind, which is an interesting thing that Jesus is able to do. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I want to tell you a story. There are two guys. One owes 500 days wages. The other one owes 50 days wages. And neither one of them can pay their debt back. They're both forgiven by the guy that they owe money to. Who do you think is going to love more? And he says, I suppose, I just want to answer the question. I suppose the one who's been forgiven more. And it's very interesting what Jesus does at that point. He turns to the woman and he speaks to Simon and you read it in verse 44 of Luke chapter 7. It says, Then he turned toward the woman, and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? <laughs> what a ridiculous question. Everybody's been watching this woman the entire time. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me kiss, a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he has been forgiven little loves little, Simon. What do you think Levi thought at that moment? Great for that woman, she's been forgiven much. Or do you think he thought about his story? And what about your story? 
have you received and embraced forgiveness or is it just something you know about? See, my fear is that so many people will just know this and they'll acknowledge that it's true and they'll even believe the stuff about Jesus on the cross, but if you don't receive that, if you don't embrace that, it doesn't transform your life. And what do you think it was like for someone who heard that and saw that take place and it's happened for them? They think about in their own lives what that's like. It's kind of like, uh, well, I was talking to a friend this week who gave me some information. He works for a moving company, and I had heard the statistic before, but I asked him, I said, how much stuff do we accumulate as Americans on a regular basis? And he verified with his boss, and his boss said that about every 1.75 years, the average American accumulates 1,000 pounds of new stuff. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? But if you start thinking about it, think of it, you just buy some clothes and you don't get rid of any other clothes and you just accumulated some stuff stuff there. Maybe you buy a TV or you buy a computer or the kids get bikes or whatever it is and you start accumulating stuff. And then also you've got gifts that people give you. You go to like Christmas party, you ever done a white elephant gift? You get this thing, it's like, I don't want it, but I have it. Or maybe you've gone to other Christmas parties and it wasn't a white elephant gift. You thought you got a white elephant gift. Anyway, you got this thing and you don't want it, but you've got to keep it because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And so praise the Lord for garages, right? <laughs> and attics and stuff storage bins and all that stuff, we accumulate stuff just as we go through life. And the longer we go through life, the more stuff we accumulate. And it's kind of like that with our spiritual lives as well. And imagine with me for a moment, this would represent our lives, and these bricks that I have here would represent our sin and the things that we do. And as you're a kid, maybe you sin because you learn that if you lie, then you can get away with stuff for your parents and you do that, and it's kind of fun. And so you tell maybe some more lies, and, and they're a little bit smaller sins, and you kind of do that, and you do it a few more times. Maybe eventually you start to sneak out, or, or maybe you get exposed to pornography for the first time, and, and you look at it, and it's fun, it's exciting, and, and so you go back, and you do it again. And then you get into a relationship with someone, and it's not healthy, it's kind of painful, but you do it again, and there's another relationship. And then you kind of grow up, and you kind of learn this pattern, and, and if you told the whole truth, people wouldn't really accept you anyways, and so you're deceptive, and maybe you don't always just lie, but sometimes you just kind of don't tell all the truth, and you always paint yourself in the best light, and you continue to do that, and, and maybe there was a, one thing, you thought it was just going to be one time, just one night, but it, it kept going, or maybe pornography became a bigger thing, or you got a divorce, or it got a little messier, and got a little bit bigger, and it became stuff you got labeled by, and then there's still the other stuff that you do periodically, and you're just kind of adding stuff, you're accumulating weight as time goes by. And the average American in 1.75 years accumulates 1,000 pounds of stuff. But think about how wonderful it is to have the storage units and have the attics and have the garage and even you can do stuff you don't really want. You can pay somebody else to store somewhere else and, and you don't have to, to deal with all that stuff. And everybody doesn't even have to know you have all that stuff. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had to carry all that stuff around with you? You see, that's what it's like in our, our spiritual lives is we actually carry all this stuff around. On a regular basis, we have it all the time. And we go to work with it, and we go to social events with it, and we even come to church with it. And we have this weight that we carry around from all those choices and all those decisions that we wonder if people know sometimes. And then you heap on top of that the judgmental looks, the anger that you have, the bitterness, how you feel like a phony. And maybe something else happens. Maybe a spouse leaves, or maybe you get caught doing something, and the pressure becomes so high that eventually, the bottom just falls out. But if you don't deal with it, you still have the stuff. And it's still a barrier between you and other people. And ultimately, it's still a barrier between you and God. When you experience forgiveness, it's all taken. 
the barrier is removed. Between you and God and between you and other people, what it is to be forgiven is that, that weight's removed and now you have direct access towards God. David, a guy in the Old Testament, a king, he talks about this after he committed adultery, tried to cover it up and piled weight upon weight in his life. He speaks about this in Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, no more lies. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, not just my sin, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Stop and contemplate that. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I decided to deal with it. I decided to get honest about it. It's another way to say I confessed my sin. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Stop and contemplate that. Pause and think about what it is to be forgiven. And what it is to be forgiven is that no longer are those things held against you. No longer do you have to carry that weight. No longer is there condemnation. For Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who've received that forgiveness. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just and he will cleanse you of your sin. He will take it because all the heavy lifting, all the punishment is given to Jesus. But we carry around this burden, we carry around this weight and that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he says, you come to me, all of you, everyone who's weary and heavy laden, everyone who's tired of carrying that junk around everywhere they go, you come to me, everyone who's burdened, everyone who's been carrying the weight and take my yoke, my work upon you because I've done all the heavy lifting. See, Jesus Christ, knowing exactly what he's doing, takes on the full wrath of God for everything you've done. And your forgiveness is tailor-made for you. And look at what he says he'll do. You will find rest for your soul. This isn't you get a nap in the middle of the day. You get rest for your soul. Do you know that freedom? Do you know what it's like to have that weight removed? Jesus Christ says to the Pharisees, to people who are religious people who know the truth about forgiveness, they know all about the sacrifice, they know all about all those things. And he says to them in John chapter 8 that they're slaves to sin. We're not slaves to anyone. We're Abraham's descendants. He says, no, when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You have to be set free by Jesus Christ. And in Galatians chapter 6, he says it's for freedom you've been set free. Do you know freedom? It's an interesting context when you read Galatians chapter 5. There's two different ways you can live. You can live according to the flesh, according to your own desires, and then what you'll receive is the fruit of the flesh. Or you can live according to the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy and love and self-control and kindness and patience. Do you live in that freedom? Because then immediately after that, Galatians 6.1, is for freedom that you've been set free. And that's forgiveness. Have you received Forgiveness. If you haven't received forgiveness, and the rest of what we'll talk about in this message does not apply to you, you must receive forgiveness. The forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers, the forgiveness that he offers because of what he did is the God-man, perfect, never sinned, dies on the cross for your sins, taking on the full wrath of God for your sins so that he can offer to you true forgiveness so that he can take the burden and the weight and he can give you a different work. And it's a work that he actually does because he does all the heavy lifting. But you must receive that forgiveness and you can do that today. And what Jesus does is he goes on in this passage to speak to forgiven people about what it looks like to live a forgiven life. Look at what he says. Verse 1, he's speaking to the disciples. He says, then he said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. 
And so here he is, he's speaking to forgiven people, and he's saying, listen, sin's still going to be part of your life. Temptation's still going to be there. You're still going to blow it. It's bound to come. You live in this world, and so therefore, this broken world, there's going to be stuff that takes place, and it's going to come in all kinds of different forms. It's going to come in all kinds of different fashions. Sometimes it'll be a text message. Sometimes it'll be an email. Sometimes it'll be through a person you would have never guessed. Sometimes it's through a difficult circumstance and a tragedy, and you want to be angry with God. And then sometimes there's other times where someone will just leave, and then the way you respond is the temptation to sin. There are all these different things that will come. But look at what he says next. Strong contrast. I understand there will be sin. I understand that it will come. But woe to that person through whom they come. This word woe, it's a strong warning. But there's also an element of grief from the heart of God here. It's woe to the person through whom this stuff comes. It shouldn't come through a forgiven person. Woe to you if it would come through you. You've seen Jesus say woe before. Remember in Luke chapter 11, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you because you tithe. And as a pastor, I'm like, whoa, whoa simmer down, Jesus. <laughs> he says, but here's the deal. You tithe, but you don't love God and you don't love justice. You know what's required of you, even from the Old Testament in Micah 6, 8, that you would love justice, that you would love mercy, that you'd walk humbly before your God and you tithe and you're proud of your religiosity. And woe to you, he says to them. There's six woes to the passage, but another one is woe to you because you heap heavy burdens on people. Your religion is actually hindering them from coming to God. You're putting more weight on them because of your religion. Woe to you. And woe to you because you have the keys to knowledge, but you hide them. And woe to you because when you make a convert, when you travel overseas to do missions work, they become twice the sons of hell that you are. Because at one point, at least they were just lost. Now they're lost and they think they're okay because they believed your lies. Woe to you. Jesus says that here to believers. Woe to you. Because there are things that are going to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. And then he gives a little analogy. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone. A millstone is a giant stone that would be used to crush grain, and a donkey would be the one that would turn the stone. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Guess what? Your fate's pretty inevitable if that happens. He's saying you'd be better off dead than to cause one of these little ones to sin. And so the question becomes, who are these little ones? What does he mean here? Is he just talking about children? Is it a certain age? Is there a certain age that passed that? It doesn't count anymore. Who are the little ones? Most scholars agree that what's being talked about here is not just children. Not that children are excluded, but it's not just children. It's people that have left religiosity. It's people that have left the Phariseeism. It's people that have turned from those things and have turned to Jesus Christ. It's the true riches that are mentioned in verse 11. It's the treasure that can't be stolen. If you cause one of those people, and specifically the word sin here, it doesn't just mean, you know, they got mad at you. Or they did some little sin it's talking about apostasy, it's talking about heresy, it's scandal on the Greek word, it's to have a scandal that you would actually, it'd be scandalous for you to do something that hinders them from actually connecting with Jesus Christ. It'd be scandalous for you to actually hinder them from coming to God and how do we do this? Why would Jesus say to us, woe to you? And the two things I can think of most are, one, our hypocrisy. When someone looks at our lives and thinks to themselves, if that's what it is to have God, I don't need that. Or two, it's a religiosity. And when we convert people to religious activity, when we convert people to good principles for their marriage or convert people to good principles for their finances and we leave out Jesus Christ and we leave out God because ultimately what we're doing is we're hindering them from coming to God. And what Jesus says is, woe to you. Don't be that person. 
Don't convert somebody to attending an event on Sunday morning. Tell them about Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. Tell them about God. And if you're hindering these little ones, these people that I have tender care for, if, if you're hindering them, woe to you. And so the warning is, and what I say to you today is this, repent. For any sin, you repent. You can't out-sin God's forgiveness. But if you won't repent, won't stop doing that and turn to God, woe to you. Grief and warning. Because your fate, you'd be better off dead than to suffer the eternal consequences. Whether that's loss of reward or whether that's condemnation. Because you're not truly a believer anyways. You've been converted to religion. Woe to you. And so what do we do? How do we guard against this? Well, you look at verse 3. In verse 3, there's a command. It says, so watch yourselves. Which I thought was kind of humorous when I read the first time. Because I thought to myself, well, we're the tender ones. We're the ones that need the tender care. We're the children. We're the ones that have been converted. We're the ones that have been changed. We're the little ones. And I thought to myself, what if I told my little ones, watch yourselves? And I was thinking about this week. Uh, my wife and I put the girls to bed. Uh, I think it was Wednesday night. And my wife went out, and she was going out with a friend. And they were just going to share their stories and get to know each other better, just living in community some. And, and I went downstairs, and I ate a late dinner. And my kitchen is right below the girls' bedroom that we just put to bed, a uh, four-year-old and our five-year-old. And I could hear that they didn't actually go to bed. Hear little footsteps running around. Every once in a while I hear a big thud, <laughs> which was interesting. But I decided, well, they're just kids, you know, let them do the thing. And they're laughing and screaming and doing all kinds of different stuff. So I decided I'm going to go up there. Well, what was happening is my four-year-old is climbing up on this bookshelf, which if we were on the book, you'd hit your head on the ceiling if you are on the bookshelf. It's a pretty high bookshelf. She's climbing up on this bookshelf, and then she's jumping off because the five-year-old's standing down there saying, I'll catch you. She doesn't catch her any time that she does it. And I'm just looking like, what are you doing? And I, I don't know what to say. There's not like a parenting formula for this deal. So I just say, you're going to kill yourself. To which my five-year-old responds, no, dad, that's not high enough to kill yourself. <laughs> Excuse me, I didn't understand that you had read all the scientific journals of height requirements. Got it. Proceed, you know, leave. I'll just leave you alone. And what are they doing? And I'm just going to let them watch themselves. Can you imagine as their father, if I said to them, you just watch yourself. They'd have chocolate for dinner, and they'd be jumping off the ceiling fan. I mean, they can't just have them watch themselves. And then here we are. We're the little ones. We're the tender ones. We're the ones that need all this care. And the father says, you watch yourselves. And what he's saying is you live in community with one another. And you live in the kind of community that I've created for you to live in. And, and you've got to watch each other. You've got to watch out for one another. Because the stuff that will cause you to sin, the stuff that will veer you away from God, it's bound to come. It will happen for all of us. No one's exempt. Watch yourselves. But here's the great part. He doesn't leave. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's the difference. Lo, I am with you always, the Great Commission. I'm always there with you, and I'll always be guiding you. And one of the ways I guide you is through my spirit. Another way that I guide you is through the truth of the word that I've given you. And so what he's talking about in community here is that we live in community guided by God's truth. And what it is is a community, though, of grace. And you see that from the next part of this passage. Look at verse 3. So watch yourselves... If your brother sins, this is someone that's another believer, someone that you're in family with. If your brother sins, rebuke him. See, grace is not that you ignore sin. That's a lack of love. But if your brother sins, you rebuke him. But you don't rebuke him with condemnation. You don't rebuke him trying to show how much better you are. See, if I'm honest with you, when I came to the Christian community, when I came to the Christian experience, that was my perception is that people were watching each other to wait for someone else to screw up bad enough that they could feel good about themselves. And it was a community of judgmentalism. It was a community of, I, I don't do these things, and that person did these things, and you actually view that person as higher than me, and so can you believe that so-and-so, and there's a prayer request, it's really gossip, and, and that's the view 
that I had of Christian community. That's not supposed to be Christian community. It's a community of grace. You rebuke him because of this. And if he repents, you forgive him. Commandment. Because you're trying to extend forgiveness. You're trying to see restoration. You're trying to see reconciliation. You want what's best for that person. So you rebuke him. You can't ignore what they're doing. But to still you can offer forgiveness. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times, and comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Commandment. You forgive again and again and again. And so what's Jesus saying here? You forgive seven times a day. And if it's eighth time, tough luck. You know, that's just what happens. No, he's saying it's unlimited forgiveness. In fact, there's another passage, a conceptually parallel passage you could read in Matthew chapter 18, where Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. He goes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? <laughs> Heard you say it before. And Jesus says to him, no, 70 times seven times, Peter. Think about how many times that is. 490 times in a day? If someone sins against you 490 times in a day, I want to know that story for one. If someone sins against you 490 times in a day, that's their full-time job is to sin against you. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is not, if they sin against you 491 times, you don't have to forgive them. He's saying that your forgiveness should be unlimited. Regardless of the quantity of sin or regardless of the magnitude of their sin, your forgiveness is unlimited that you give because the forgiveness that Jesus gives is unlimited. You can't out his forgiveness. He continually is offering unconditional forgiveness. Now, in order for reconciliation to take place, they have to repent. They have to receive that forgiveness. But they don't have to repent in order for you to extend forgiveness. And what you think is, you're a forgiven person, and because you've received forgiveness, forgiven people forgive. And I want you to forgive in an unlimited quantity. I want you to forgive with the kind of forgiveness that I forgive with. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about what's the best illustration I know of of forgiveness. And the best story that I know of to, to try and illustrate this to you is a human trafficking story. And uh, my wife and I have become more aware of this social tragedy that's taking place. It's human trafficking. And some of you are already aware there are more slaves actually in the world today than there have ever been before. Most of them are labor slaves or sex slaves that people are being bought and sold literally like objects. And that's even happening here in America on a regular basis. And this week I was reading through a story and talking about with my wife a story of a young man who actually got sold by his siblings. A lot of times when you hear human trafficking stories, what happens is the, the, the slave traders, they actually will come to like villages and places where people have a hard time feeding their kids and all those types of things. And they'll say, if you give us your child, we'll give you some money so you can eat and we'll take your child so that they'll have a better life and we'll give them a job. And we'll give them a job and then we'll take care of them. And so the parent actually thinks they're doing something good and they sell their child. But in the story that I was talking to my wife about, what happened actually is the siblings had sold this young child. And they sold the child not because they didn't have enough money. They sold the child because they didn't like the child. And they didn't get a lot of money for the kid. And the slave traders took him. And like oftentimes, oftentimes takes place as human trafficking, uh, the child got sold again to a really rich guy who actually lived in Egypt. And this guy brought him into his home and was planning on using him in his home uh, to do different work for him. But his wife had a different idea. His wife wanted to use him for sex. And that sent him into a spiral of bondage that lasted for years. And the way the story goes, if you continue to read the story, is that he grows up and he gets out of this bondage and he's doing business and he continues to live in Egypt. And he actually, through a business deal, comes face to face with his brother who sold him, his different brothers that sold him. And they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Can you imagine how that would feel? And then he says to them, I'm your brother. And he begins sobbing. And then he says to them, Don't be afraid and don't be angry. 
with yourselves because God had a plan for all this. The guy's name is Joseph. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. And he says in chapter 50, he says what, what man intended for harm, God intended for good because God can redeem those things. God didn't cause those things. And I don't know what your pain is. I don't know who you need to forgive. But I'm going to bet whatever it is you need to most forgive in your life is probably somebody you've been in community with, probably a family member or a spouse or an ex-spouse or a child or a parent or somebody else that you went to church with. You know, we live in a broken place and sin's bound to come and you know what happens? All those people, they still sin and it will hurt. And I promise you, if you get into community, we talk about community here as a church, you'll get hurt. Somebody will betray you. Somebody will say some word against you. Somebody might even do something very harmful to you. It will happen. It's just this world is screwed up. Well, Jesus says, forgive. Forgive that person. But you don't understand, Scott. You don't know my story and there's a story and if I forgive them, it's like I'm letting them get away with it. And, And you believe that. But let me ask you this. Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for that sin that that person did against you? And if Jesus offers them forgiveness, who are you to only offer condemnation? If you're a forgiven person, forgiven people forgive, but it's supernatural. It doesn't just happen naturally. And that's what the disciples realize. And some of you, you're there, and you're thinking about who you need to forgive, and you think, I can't. That's a great place to be. Don't go to the conclusion that you won't yet. See what the disciples say, because the disciples are at this moment. These are real people. These are real men with real past and real stories and real pain. And maybe they've been abandoned, or maybe they've been abused, or maybe they've been betrayed. And those different things have happened to them. And look at what one of them cries out in verse 5. Increase our faith, emphatically. Give me more faith. Because they come to the realization that faith requires, or forgiveness requires faith. It always does. Forgiveness always requires faith. That's our second point. That forgiveness always requires faith. And you think about it, it required faith for you to receive forgiveness. For those of you who have received forgiveness, it required that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would trust his promise, that you would trust who he is, and that he's not just a normal man. Because a normal man can only die one life. And even if he never sinned as a normal man and he died, he can only die for one person. But because he was the God-man, because he was full deity and full humanity at the same time on the cross and lived a perfect life, that when the wrath of God was poured out on him, he could die for all of humanity. He could die for the entire world, offering forgiveness to everyone. And he can offer a forgiveness that he says that we're supposed to have, being able to offer. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, we're told that we're to forgive just as Christ and God forgave us. And you know what the kind of forgiveness he gave? He's the guy who's on the cross. He's been naked, humiliated, beaten, all that stuff. And then he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. They knew what they were doing when they stripped him naked and they beat him and they mocked him. They hung him on the cross. They didn't realize that he was the God-man that was taking on the wrath for their sins at that very moment. That's what he's done for us. That's the forgiveness that, that he offers us. And when you trust that, when you believe that, when you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and you receive forgiveness, it requires trust and something supernatural takes place. And the same is true in order for you to give forgiveness. You must trust. You must trust that what Jesus Christ says about forgiveness is true. You must trust that Jesus actually died for the sins of the person who sinned against you. You must trust that if he commands you to do something, and he says that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light, that he'll actually do that thing through you. That he'll empower you. He'll, through the power of the Spirit, allow you to be able to do the very thing he commands you to do. He's not just trying to frustrate you. But you can never do it on your own. You can never do it in your own flesh because it requires trust. And so you can either trust in yourself 
or you can trust in God. And when we trust in ourselves, a lot of times we tell ourselves stories. Like, if I forgive this person, then I'm just letting them get away with it. No, you're not. You're acknowledging that it's already been paid for at the cross. If I forgive this person, then you don't understand, then, then I'll lose control. You don't have any control anyways. If I forgive this person, then I won't have anything I can hold against them. And see, a lot of people believe that myth, that lie. It's like our own promises to ourselves that we say these things and we'll trust in ourselves and trust these things. What I've seen is that when people hold stuff against someone else, the other person doesn't even oftentimes know that they're holding it against them. And some of you think about that's your story. You're, you're angry at someone for something they've done. They don't even know you're angry at them. So what happens is you hold this against them and you think that you've got some kind of control and that thing begins to control you. And you become angry and you become bitter and the weight starts weighing on you. You're actually carrying the weight of their sin. And you think that somehow you have control and you're believing a lie. And so those are the promises we tell ourselves. Those are the things we tell ourselves. So we can trust ourselves. And if you think about how ridiculous is that, because we're so limited, we're what theologians call finite. We're limited in every way. We're physically limited. We only have so many physical abilities. We're mentally limited. We're financially limited. We've got all kinds of limitations. We must eat. We need that in order to be able to continue to survive. We must sleep, <laughs> unless we drink five of our energy drinks all the time. But we must sleep at some point. We're limited. I mean, I can't even remember my own security questions on my own bank account. I mean, I'm limited intelligence-wise. Or we can trust in Jesus Christ, who is unlimited. And if you truly believe that he is who the Scripture says he is, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. He always was and always will be. He created you. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you say them. He, he goes before you. He goes behind you. He's continually protecting you and shepherding you. He's the one who offers you abundant life. And when you're a sheep, when you're forgiven, you know his voice. He's the one that on the cross was an atonement for your sin, died in your place. He's the propitiation for your sin. He offers you justification so that you can be reconciled. He begins a process of sanctification. He can redeem you. He can reconcile you. He is the light of the world. He is living water. He's the bread of life. You need to eat. He's the bread of life. He is the beginning and the end. There's no end to him. You get tired at the end of the day. You can trust yourself or, or you can trust him. You can trust the one who was holy so that you could be holy. You can trust the one who gives mercy so that you could be merciful. You can trust the one who is love so that you could love. You can trust the one who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You can trust the one who, who died for you so you wouldn't have condemnation, so you wouldn't have those chains, so you wouldn't have that way. You can trust the one who forgave so that you could forgive. Some of you need to trust Jesus Christ. Some of you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. And you need to take that sin, you need to take that weight, and you need to hand it to the cross where Jesus died for you. And he says, if you're weary and heavy laden, you come to me, I give you rest. Cast all your cares upon me, because I care for you. He died for you and for all of your stuff. And what you need to do is receive his forgiveness. You can do that in a moment, I'll pray. I ask you to trust Jesus as your Savior today. And some of you, I've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But there's still something hindering you in your relationship. Maybe it's a new sin that you've done, or maybe you just haven't dealt with it, and it's time to trust God with that. And you know how he tells us to do that? It's in, through community. And so we walk with one another in that. Not so that the other person can forgive you, but so that we can speak truth into one another's lives. And so what we're going to do at the end of this service is we're going to have some people that are going to be up here. If you want to pray with someone today about some forgiveness you need to deal with, and you want to confess some sin to another believer, and they'll point you to the Scriptures, they'll point you to God, not because they're your priests, so they're not going to forgive you, but they're going to point you to God and they're going to speak truth into your life. We're going to have some people down here that would love to talk with you. So if you're in Theater 14, just on your way out, go down the ramp. If you're in Theater 9 here with me, just go down the ramp. And there are people that are in here today that you need to forgive a person. 
And I trust the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and will put that person's face or that person's name in your mind. They probably already have. God's probably already done that. And you might be wrestling with, I can't. And that's exactly right. But Jesus can. And you need to trust him with that. And some of you may need to talk to another person about that. And so we'll have some people here that would love to talk with you. You want to trust Jesus? You want to talk with someone? We'll have some people that would love to talk with you. But here's the deal. Forgiven people forgive people, and forgiveness always requires faith. And so the question is, will you trust him? You've been entrusted with tailor-made forgiveness for your life. Will you trust him? Let's pray. God, we come before you. We are grateful that you are a heavenly father who never leaves us or forsakes us. That even when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when Satan himself sinned in heaven, you didn't give up on us. But you had a plan for redemption, and that plan was through your son, Jesus Christ, and we are so grateful for that. I pray for any here that need to accept your son, Jesus Christ, into their life today. Maybe they've been religious. Maybe they've been nice people, good people. Maybe they've blown it so bad they didn't think they could ever be forgiven. But God, I pray you would speak into their hearts right now by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. You would speak to them and draw them to yourself and just make it heavy upon them. They need to trust your son, Jesus. If you're here today and you want to trust Jesus, just call out on him and acknowledge your sin before him. Acknowledge who you are and, and who he is as a holy and righteous God. And who his son Jesus Christ was as a substitution for your sin on the cross and receive his forgiveness. And you can pray that as you sit there right now. And if you pray that prayer, I just ask you if you'd fill it out on your connection card that you did that. We want to pray for you. That's an incredibly significant decision. But Father God, I, I pray for the believers that are hearing these words and, and they need to deal with forgiveness. I pray that they would do that immediately. They wouldn't let it linger, that they would keep short accounts of sin. They would come before you and cast those things at the foot of the cross and allow your blood to wash us clean and free. Father, I thank you for your forgiveness. I know it requires humility to come before you and humility to forgive others. And some of us have been wrong in big ways. And some of us, we hold that and we keep that. And God, I pray today would be a day we could release that weight. Stop carrying around other people's sin and forgive those people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.